Welcome to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I am your guest host this week, Kimberly Winston. Each week, we explore the beliefs that shape our world. This weekend marks the beginning of Ramadan, the ninth month of the Islamic calendar, observed by Muslims worldwide as a time of fasting, prayer, reflection, and community. We thought this would be an excellent opportunity to broadcast a special documentary from the Spiritual Edge podcast titled Becoming Muslim, a series that profiles people from diverse communities in America that have chosen to convert. Let's turn things over to the host and reporter, Hana Baba. In the next hour, you're going to hear the stories of people, all from very different communities. They're part of a series called Becoming Muslim, produced by the Spiritual Edge podcast. Here's our first story. One thing I know as a Muslim in America is that you can't tell the story of Islam in this country without telling the story of Black Muslims. Today, we're going to tell you the complicated story of the nation of Islam through the eyes of one man. I was a basketball player. In the dark suits, Ohio State scores. Abdul Rauf Nasir was at the University of California at Berkeley in the late 60s. I played basketball at Berkeley High, and then I played at Cal too, so I came there as an athlete and a student, student athlete. Uh, but we spent a lot of time, you know, uh, doing other things. Uh, and one of the things we did, we, we, we played cards a lot. We gambled, actually. I was a gambler. And there was a guy who used to come to the gambling table that was in the student union building, and he was a member of the Nation of Islam. By this time, the Nation of Islam was almost 40 years old, and recruitment on campuses was well-established. And he would sell us the paper, Muhammad Speaks newspaper, and he wouldn't leave until we bought some, you know. So we would always buy the paper. It was news of the day. Uh, when I say news of the day, news that was relevant to African-American people at the time. It was defining the African-American uh, civil rights struggle in a different way than what was popular in the media um, because they were talking about separating from America rather than uh, integrating, and they were talking about doing for self. This was a different message than Martin Luther King Jr.'s, whose rhetoric of nonviolence dominated the narrative around black civil rights at the time. We must continue to delve deeper into the philosophy of nonviolent resistance. Many of the younger people were looking for a stronger way or a different way, a more, a more aggressive way, if you want to put it that way, to, you know, to advance our struggle. They were pushing the older generation to do more, you know, to protect ourselves, not to, not to follow the nonviolent path. At the same time, students all around Abdul Rauf were demanding change. His black teammates were threatening to strike when one of them was suspended, allegedly for wearing an afro. On the academic side, students were demanding to be taught black studies. He was intrigued by all of it. There were many, many groups that were proposing we have a better solution to advancing our our cause toward dignity and and uh, self-respect and equality and all these things that we were that became more important to me uh, as I you know got older and uh, the nation of Islam of course began to grab more of my attention. We'll rejoin Abdul Rauf in a bit, but first let's talk about the nation of Islam. 
The Nation of Islam was founded in Detroit in 1930 by a man named Wallace D. Fard, or Master Fard Muhammad. He was a dynamic preacher who claimed he was the manifestation of God on earth. He gave his closest follower, Elijah Poole, the title of Messenger of God, renaming him the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. Greetings to you. I'm Elijah Muhammad, the preacher of freedom, justice, and equality. And it was Elijah Muhammad who led and grew the nation over the next decades till his death in 1975. His teachings were based on Afrocentric ideas that preached black nationalism, economic independence, and a complete separation from white people. We have been humble to them for 400 years, and we have not gotten any credit for them. From a religious standpoint, followers of the nation call themselves Muslims, a hearkening back, they say, to the original religion of their enslaved ancestors. And they shunned Christianity as the white slave master's religion. They followed the Quran, though their version of Muslim teachings has been called a heterodoxy from Islamic principles, especially when it comes to the idea that God can come to earth in human form. But Elijah Muhammad did believe that. Here he is in a television interview from the early 1960s, explaining where he says the teachings came from. It is all from him. From him you mean the messenger of of Allah? No, not the messenger of Allah. I'm the messenger of Allah. I mean from Allah himself who came in the person of Master Farad Muhammad. Elijah Muhammad grew the nation from a group of less than 200 followers in Detroit and Chicago in the 1930s to a nationwide network of temples. By the 60s, the membership had grown to 100,000. The nation advocated self-sufficiency, owning retail and wholesale businesses, schools, housing complexes, banks, and thousands of acres of farmland. It is time for you and me to stand up for ourselves. During this time, Malcolm X had emerged as a charismatic, straight-shooting minister and spokesman for the nation. It is time for you and me to see for ourselves. It is time for you and me to hear for ourselves. And it is time for you and me to fight for ourselves. Malcolm was a gifted communicator, but he also clashed with its leader, Elijah Muhammad. They eventually fell out over stories about Elijah's affairs with young women. Malcolm also began to have experiences that pulled him away from the central teachings of the organization. In the spring of 1964, he left the nation. That same year, he traveled overseas on a trip to Mecca to perform the Hajj. It was life-changing, according to Professor Kayla Wheeler at Xavier University in Cincinnati, an expert on Black Muslims in the U.S. Traveling abroad, being able to go to Egypt, having connections with non-Black Muslims when he goes to the Hajj and he is praying next to blonde-haired, blue-eyed men who he had been taught were the devil and seeing that they were his brothers in faith. That experience changed Malcolm's ideology. While I was at Mecca making the pilgrimage, I spoke about the brotherhood that existed at all levels and among all people who were there on that Hajj who had accepted the religion of Islam. He left the Hajj with a decision to leave the nation and embrace Sunni Islam, the more mainstream Islam that preached racial equality. He denounced black supremacy and the more militant talk of racial segregation he had engaged in. After that, tensions between Malcolm and the nation escalated. 
1965, he was assassinated. The following year, three members of the Nation of Islam were convicted of his killing. The assassination of Malcolm X was an unfortunate tragedy. By the time Abdul Rauf got to Berkeley in 1967, Malcolm had been dead two years, but his presence was still huge. I began to study Malcolm, and uh, his approach was, of course, uh, self-defense. Abdul Rauf began to read Malcolm's writings and learn about his role in helping grow the nation alongside leader Elijah Muhammad. He was energetic. He was brilliant. Uh, and he and he was full of energy to, to spread those teachings. Abdul Rauf was just one of many young people who were drawn to the nation during this period. Its message was simple and effective, that Christianity was the religion of the white man forced onto them by slavery, and that Islam was the original faith of their African ancestors they needed to return to. A message that was instrumental to converting generations of African Americans to Islam. At this point in his life, Abdul Rauf was watching as friends were starting to join. One sister who was a good friend of mine, and um, we used to, you know, do a lot of stuff together. She was active in, in student work, uh, in the movements and what have you. And one day I go to her house, and she's got on this white dress. And uh, actually, I was going there to, to, to do some of the illegal stuff we used to do <laughs> together, you know. Uh, and uh, she said she no longer did that. So that really impressed me. And one afternoon in 1969, he decided to go to his first nation meeting across the bay in San Francisco. When I went there, I saw some of my other neighborhood friends. In fact, there was a guy who was a janitor at Berkeley High School, a couple athletes from other schools. They were they had converted. The message was appealing to a wide range of folks. Nation of Islam was a self-help organization. So they were saying that we had the responsibility to do these things for ourselves, that that we're asking white people to do for us. This is what I've been reading in the paper. But now I'm hearing it live from from one of their representatives. They're very, very effective speakers. Abdul Rauf was entranced and was primed and ready to join. And so at the end of that meeting, they asked who believes what you heard is the truth. And you stand up and they said, who, uh, and if you want to get more information, follow that guy right there. So you follow the guy in the back, one of their representatives in the back, and then they give out these letters. They say, if you want to join your own and, you know, and be yourself, then you write this letter. And it's a letter that says, I, uh, I want to uh, get a name. I want to give back the slave master's name. He's given the name Abdul Rauf Nasir, and he won't tell me his former name. He feels very strongly about what happened that day, the day he became a member of the Nation of Islam. He started coming to the meetings, learning the teachings, the prayers. His transition was smooth, but some things were hard to deal with. One of the key things and one of the things that was emphasized at the time was not eating pork. My problem was when I would go home and my mother would cook, I'm not eating that. And then you shouldn't eat it. And uh, I want to throw her pork out in her house. And so that's where the difficulty came in. Boy, you lost your mind. You're crazy. Blah, blah, blah. I raised you on that. Look, you was eating it yesterday. Now you're not eating what you know. A big part of being a member was being part of the independent economy. And that newspaper, he was selling that too now, helping the nation achieve incredible sales numbers. They sold a million copies a week. Uh, a week? A, a week. Because all the men were required to sell the paper. We bought farmland. We started importing fish, millions of pounds of fish, and we would take them door to door along with the bean pie. 
the iconic black Muslim bean pies, still sold to this day outside mosques across the country. Years go by, Abdul graduates with a degree in social science, and in the coming years, he would witness the nation going through a huge transformation, one that would force him to make a critical decision about what he believed. It had to do with fresh tensions, this time between Elijah Muhammad and his son, Wallace, known as Warithuddin Muhammad. Warithuddin rejected Elijah's idea of the nature of God. Here's Kayla Wheeler again. Another thing that he rejected that was common among some members of the Nation of Islam is believing that white people do have some inherent evilness to them. So he took a different, more universal approach to what race and racism could be like. So it was not saying that white people were incapable of being racist or that racism did not exist. It was rather saying that it's a social structure. It's not anything that is inherent in an individual. These ideological struggles were at the heart of the nation's transformation. When Elijah Muhammad died in February of 1975, Warithuddin took over, and he started to change the organization immediately. Abdul Rauf was a young grad, and he was following all of this closely. So Wallace Muhammad came in. Yes! That's what I was taught, that's what I was taught, that's what I was given, that's what I believe. Until my mind began to grow out of it. Huh? But the son of Elijah didn't choose to follow the way of Elijah. He chose to follow the way of Muhammad of the Quran. He began to name this part of the journey to Islam as the second resurrection, that the first part of his father's work was the first resurrection, and that this was the second resurrection. And, um, he began to immediately make changes. He said early on what the Nation of Islam was doing that agreed with what he found in the Quran, he would keep. And what he found that was in disagreement with the Holy Quran, he would eliminate. Warthuddin abandoned the Nation of Islam and began to call his organization World Community of Islam. Kayla Wheeler says he very quickly started to move away from some of the black nationalist principles and towards a more global perspective. And that was a big change. People are kind of confused about what's going on. Uh, They give him the benefit of the doubt for a while. But eventually, the group splits. And this is where a familiar name enters the story. Louis Farrakhan, who was a minister in the nation, he decides to break away from Warthuddin and revive the Nation of Islam. And so you do see some families picking which side do they want to go to. Do they want to stay with Imam Muhammad, the son of Elijah Muhammad, or do they want to go with Louis Farrakhan, who claims that he is really keeping Elijah Muhammad's ideas and messages together? Everybody had to make a choice, but for Abdul Rauf, he knew where his heart was. It was clear to him what Warithuddin was saying made sense to him, especially when it came to a basic belief he was having trouble with. The concept of God, it was so unclear what that meant. God came in the person of somebody. The idea that God could come down to earth in the form of a man, that was never what Abdul Rauf believed. He also liked the idea of moving towards a more global and traditional Islam. He started traveling. He went to Africa, Europe. He met Muslims in different countries. And when he got back home, this was 1977, things had changed. 
they had selected a new leader in our local mosque here. He was the first non-African American. Uh, he was the first Pakistani American or Indian American. He's, you know, he was older than Pakistan was. So he began to, of course, institute Juma prayer and Arabic classes and all those kind of things. Most nation members made the choice Abdul Rauf did to stick with Warathuddin and his move to a more traditional Islam. A much smaller group broke off with Farrakhan. Today, black Muslims make up about a fifth of American Muslims, many of them now born into the faith as decades pass. The majority identify as Sunni Muslim or just Muslim. Only 2% have stayed with the nation led by Louis Farrakhan. No matter which black Muslim group you're talking about, scholar Kayla Wheeler says they all share something deep. The number one thing is the love of blackness. You can't go into an Imam Warfi Muhammad masjid and not feel like how black it is in terms of what the khutbah would be. Hearing call and response, somebody is yelling takbir, giving me an amin. There's just this sense of blackness and this distinct black Americanness that is, transcends um, that divide between Imam Warfi Muhammad and the Nation of Islam. I think also what both organizations have been able to keep is connecting to the past, recognizing that they stand on the shoulders of so many Black Muslims and Black revolutionaries. As for Abdul Rauf, he worked as a social worker for many years, earning degrees in Islamic leadership and Islamic studies. Then he found his calling in prison chaplaincy, working 20 years in California prisons as a Muslim chaplain. He's retired now, but he advises people on parole. He holds classes at his local mosque in Oakland. He may not identify with the Nation of Islam today, but he says without it, there may have not been an American Islam at all. The Nation of Islam should get credit for having introduced Islam to America in a major way. We are listening to Becoming Muslim, produced by KALW's The Spiritual Edge. We'll hear more after the break. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. Stay with us. Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. 
www.thepowerhouse.com. Thank you, and let's get back to the show. Thank you. 